turn for our scripture reading this morning to 1 Kings chapter 22, where we read of the alliance between Ahab and Jehoshaphat as they go up together to capture Ramoth Gilead. 1 Kings chapter 22, an account which is repeated in 2 Chronicles 18, but we'll take our reading this morning from 1 Kings. I'd like to address you this morning on the subject of Jehovah's prophet among the parrots. Hear now God's word, beginning at 1 Kings 22.1. And they continued three years without war between Syria and Israel. And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said unto his servants, Know ye that Ramoth Gilead is ours, and we are still, and take it not out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said unto Jehoshaphat, Wilt thou go with me to battle to Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire first, I pray thee, for the word of Jehovah. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about four hundred men, and said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of Jehovah besides, that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of Jehovah, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him. For he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Fetch quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes, in an open place at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenah, made him horns of iron, and said, Thus saith Jehovah, With thee shalt thou push the Syrians until they be consumed. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for Jehovah will deliver it into the hand of the king. And the messenger that went to call Micaiah spake unto him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth, let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak thou good. And Micaiah said, As Jehovah liveth, what Jehovah saith unto me, that will I speak. And when he was come to the king, the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And he answered him, Go up and prosper. And Jehovah will deliver it into the hand of the king. And the king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee 
that thou speak unto me nothing but the truth in the name of Jehovah. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered upon the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And Jehovah said, These have no master. Let them return every man to his own house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell thee that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear thou the word of Jehovah. I saw Jehovah sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And Jehovah said, Who shall entice Ahab, that he may go up to fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit, and stood before Jehovah, and said, I will entice him. And Jehovah said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt entice him, and shalt prevail also. Go forth and do it. Now therefore, behold, Jehovah hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets. And Jehovah hath spoken evil concerning thee. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenah, came near and smote Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way went the spirit of Jehovah from me to speak unto thee? And Micaiah said, Behold, thou shalt see on that day, when thou shalt go into an inner chamber to hide thyself. And the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah, and carry him back unto Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash the king's son, and say, Thus saith the king, Put this fellow in the prison, and feed him with the bread of affliction, and with water of affliction, until I come in peace." And Micaiah said, If thou return at all in peace, Jehovah hath not spoken by me. And he said, Hear ye peoples, all of you. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into the battle, but put thou on thy robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the thirty and two captains of his chariots, saying, Fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king of Israel. And it came to pass when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, that they said, Surely it is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And it came to pass... When the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, that they turned back from pursuing him. And a certain man drew his bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the armor. Wherefore he said unto the driver of his chariot, Turn thy hand and carry me out of the host, for I am sorely wounded. And the battle increased that day. And the king was stayed up in his chariot against the Syrians, and died at evening. And the blood ran out of the wound into the bottom of the chariot. And there went a cry throughout the host about the going down of the sun, saying, Every man to his city, and every man to his country. So the king died, and was brought to Samaria, 
and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. Now the harlots washed themselves there, according unto the word of Jehovah, which he spake. And thus far the reading of God's holy word. It's one of the most dramatic stories in the entire Old Testament, and it illustrates very clearly the theme of the books of First and Second Kings. And that theme is found in the closing phrase of our scripture reading this morning, according to the word of Jehovah. For God's people needed to learn that everything that takes place in history takes place according to his decree and according to his word. And God's people needed to learn that the word of the Lord could not be faulted. It could never be wrong. And so the affairs of the Israelites and the Judeans were declared by the word of the Lord in advance. And the word of the Lord had said about Ahab, the most wicked ruler ever over God's people, that because of his sins and his rebellion against the word of God, the dogs of Samaria would lick his blood. Ahab could not believe that word, but as you hear in our account, it became true. Ahab was looked upon as more evil than any other ruler before him, and after his death it is declared there has never been a king more wicked than Ahab. Ahab followed Baal, the false god, the nature god of the Amorites and the other uh, Canaanite tribes around Israel. He followed Baal and engaged in the fertility cults of the Asherah. Ahab was a very wicked man, so wicked that he defied the word of God and married someone who was an outsider to the faith. He married Jezebel from Sidon, and Jezebel worshipped the Baals as well, and Jezebel was a wicked woman. Ahab is the man who assembled the 450 prophets of Baal against Elijah on Mount Carmel. You may recall that story how Israel had gone after the Baals because Ahab had as well. Now do remember, of course, as background to this, that the people of God are divided into two factions, into two kingdoms. A northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, or Ephraim as it was sometimes called. Its capital was Samaria, and Ahab at this time is the king of the northern tribes, which have broken away from the southern king, in Jerusalem, in Judah. The southern uh, tribes of Benjamin and Judah were in alliance and in submission to the word of God because God had declared that David's sons should rule over his people. But there was rebellion against David's sons and the ten tribes to the north went their own direction. And not one king of the northern ten tribes was a good king. Not one. And Ahab was the worst of them all. It's this Ahab that gathered the 450 prophets of Baal against Elijah, one man who would take a stand for the word of God. Of course, the 450 prophets of Baal were humiliated on Mount Carmel as they cried out to their false god day and night and slashed themselves and engaged in all sorts of religious hubbub in order to get their sacrifice lit. And it would not be. Elijah, toward the end of the day, 
poured water upon his own sacrifice, making it impossible to light the wood. In fact, so much water that formed a moat about the altar. And he made one simple prayer to Jehovah, and the sacrifice was lit, upon which Elijah called for the 450 prophets of Baal to be slaughtered there and executed for their misleading the people of God. To convince him that Jehovah was God, the Lord sent to Ahab after this time a prophet to announce that Jehovah would give him a very unlikely victory against Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad was the leader of the Syrians. The Syrians, of course, are not Jews. They are enemies of the Jews. Uh, their country is to the north and to the east of Israel. And they were constantly at war. Ben-Hadad had a superior force, but Jehovah said, Ahab, I will prove who I am. You will have victory over Ben-Hadad himself. He did have victory over Ben-Hadad, but to show you the wickedness of this man Ahab, instead of executing Ben-Hadad according to the word of the Lord, Ahab violated God's covenant and made a treaty with Ben-Hadad, a treaty of peace. Ben-Hadad and all the Syrians had been put under the ban. The language in the Hebrew is the language of holy war. Everything was to be devoted to destruction, and Ben-Hadad was to be publicly executed. And instead, Ahab made a treaty of peace with him. And it was at that point that God pronounced that Ahab then will take the place of Ben-Hadad and be punished. God's honor was obviously not the most uppermost consideration in the mind of this wicked king Ahab. Nor was God's justice sacred to him. As far as Jezebel, his wife, was concerned, a king is not bound by any law. A king can do whatever he pleases. Ahab was under the law of God. Ahab should have recognized that his actions and decisions were to be regulated by that law and by none other. However, when Ahab saw Naboth's vineyard close to his own summer palace in Jezreel, he wanted Naboth's vineyard and went and made him an offer. Naboth said, no, this is my family inheritance. I cannot and I will not sell it to you. Ahab went home and put his face to the wall and pouted because he could not have Naboth's vineyard. And Jezebel said, What kind of king are you? Don't you know you can have whatever you wish? And so Jezebel and Ahab trump up charges against Naboth. Naboth is very quickly condemned in a kangaroo court and executed, and Ahab seizes his vineyard. Then Elijah says, The dogs will lick your blood. Ahab was unfaithful. In the face of foreign enemies of God's kingdom, Ahab was unfaithful with respect to his own people who were supposed to constitute God's kingdom. And his lack of obedient faith placed him outside of the kingdom of God and placed him contrary to the kingdom of God. So this you need to know about Ahab. Now who is this other man, Jehoshaphat, of whom we read in our story this morning? Jehoshaphat was the fourth king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Jehoshaphat fortified the region militarily and reformed the administration of justice in Jerusalem. 
Jehoshaphat resisted idolatry. He had the law of God taught throughout the land of Judah. Jehoshaphat made peace with Israel, the northern kingdom, so that the civil war that had been taking place between them would cease. After what takes place in our text this morning, which is certainly contrary to the general character of Jehoshaphat as a good king, in fact, one of the best kings of the southern kingdom, after this incident in our text, his humble prayer to Jehovah saved Judah against the fourfold alliance of Moab, Ammon, Syria, and Edom. And when we read the concluding evaluation of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 17 and 19, God speaks very fond and supportive and strong words for Jehoshaphat. He was a good king. But this morning we see him at his worst. Jehoshaphat, perhaps misled through fallacious reasoning and having good motives about wanting to unify the people of God and vindicate their honor against the foreign power, was willing to go into an alliance with Ahab, the most wicked king of Israel. He never should have done that. The shame of that alliance should be obvious to us. Ephraim had opposed Judah. Ephraim had separated the northern ten tribes completely from the house of Judah. Ephraim had taken on a audacious stand against the word of the Lord, against his sovereign direction for his kingdom in Israel's affairs. Ephraim was an insult against God's covenant with David. And you notice we do not find Ephraim or Israel, the northern kingdom. We don't find Israel coming to Judah to look for this alliance. We see Judah going to Ephraim for it. We see Judah following along behind Israel, the rebel tribes. Jehoshaphat sought out Ahab. And not only did he seek him out, he took, out, he took a subordinate position with respect to leadership. Though he was David's son and the rightful ruler over God's people, he submitted himself to a rebel king and to the worst of all the rebel kings of the northern empire. This is not Jehoshaphat at his best. Now, Jehoshaphat may have rightly seen that the two kingdoms came from the same patriarch, that unitedly they constituted Israel, the people of God. But his alliance with Ahab, um, by this alliance with Ahab, he was sanctioning the rebellion of the northern tribes and surrendering the primacy of God's covenant word. He was failing to separate himself both from the personal and the professional wickedness of a covenant-breaking and God-hating king. My friends, a child of God had no friendly place in the palace of an idolater and a murderer, someone who had come under the explicit prophetic condemnation of Jehovah. And so please remember the shame of this alliance. You need also, if you're to understand this story, to see Ramoth Gilead in Ahab's battle plan. You see, after that war with Ben-Hadad, of which I spoke earlier, Israel and Syria were at peace for three years. That's the way our reading begins. They continued three years without war. Now, Ben-Hadad, instead of being executed, made was given a treaty of peace by Ahab, and part of that covenanted treaty called for Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, to return to Israel 
those cities which had formerly belonged to Israel but had been occupied by the Syrians. Now Ahab has come to the opinion after three years that an injustice has been done to him. For in his view, Ramoth Gilead was one of those former possessions that Ben-Hadad had not surrendered. Political sovereignty still belonged to Syria over Ramoth Gilead. Ramoth Gilead was not a particularly large city, but it was a point of principle. Ramoth Gilead was across and slightly north from Samaria, about as far to the east of the Jordan River as Samaria was to the west of the Jordan River, and it lied right on the southern boundary of Syria. So it was a, a very good choice to make a point of principle. Will you return this city as well or not? Ahab has become bold. Ahab now proposes to take Ramoth Gilead by force since Ben-Hadad would not surrender it peacefully. And so here we have Jehoshaphat, the legitimate ruler of God's people, ordinarily a good king, going up, as it, our text tells us, to the northern empire of Samaria and making an alliance with Ahab to go to war so that God's people may capture Ramoth Gilead from Syria. That's the setting. Now we finally get to the point of the story. Ahab's prophets. Jehoshaphat being a godly king, though he's in a very ungodly setting, I'm sorry to say. Jehoshaphat being a godly king says, shouldn't we inquire of Jehovah before we go to war? Well, that's no problem for Ahab. Ahab's got all sorts of prophets that'll say everything he wants. Of course, let's inquire of Jehovah. You have to remember that the prophets of Ahab are not the prophets of Baal. They've been executed on Mount Carmel. These are prophets of the Northern Empire. The Northern Empire of Israel continued idolatrous worship of the golden calves. You know the story of the golden calf from Moses going up on Mount Sinai. And because Moses was gone so long, Aaron, through the cajoling of the people, decides to make a golden calf. Many people forget that the golden calf was not to be a, a false god to the Israelites. The golden calf represented Jehovah. Aaron says so. We're worshiping Jehovah. This is, this is an assembly of Jehovah. And yet God is furious because he's not to be worshipped in that medium. Well, the northern empire of Israel reverted to the golden calf worship. And there were prophets of the golden calves. And I think that's probably uh, what we're reading about in 1 Kings 22 as Ahab has um, many prophets about. Uh, that he might consult. And we read later in the story that the Lord God sent a lying spirit among these prophets of Ahab, letting sin run its course in their lives. These prophets were not uttering deliberate lies. If they were, the story would be easy to conclude. We can make our application and go on. These men believed what they said. And the reason they believed it, and this should make you shudder to the core of your being, is because God sent a spirit to make them believe it. They believed they were speaking the truth. They believed that Ahab would go up and he would prevail at Ramoth Gilead. They actually brought themselves to believe that he'd be successful in this undertaking. In fact, you see later 
that when Micaiah speaks and he says, I declare the word of the Lord, Zedekiah, the leader of the golden calf prophets, Zedekiah says, and when did the Spirit of the Lord leave me to go to you? He's offended that Micaiah should think he's speaking the truth and Zedekiah is not. And so here we have the worst of deceptions. And it always is this way. The worst of deceptions is in religious matters because, you see, in religious matters, people are the most sincere, the most zealous and firm. If they think God has led them to believe something, then they don't want to give it up. It's the worst of deceptions because it was religious. And secondly, because it was self-deception. And when it's self-deception, there is little hope of dropping the sham and admitting the truth. Because not only are you being lied to, you're the one doing the lying. And so here you have these men. In fact, they are so confident of what they're saying that they enact a parable. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 17, in the Song of Moses, we read that Joseph will have horns and will shove all his enemies to and fro. And so now the king of Judah and Israel, they, these kings are set in their royal garb publicly, and the prophets come and they put horns on their head, and they run about at each other to enact that parable that you too, Ahab, will shove all your enemies to and fro. By the way, I hope you don't miss the literary pointer. The Word of God's written with a great deal of dexterity and balance and beauty. Because first we see the king of Judah and Israel, these kings set in their royal garb, being lied to by the prophets who have deceived themselves. And when Micaiah speaks, he says, I saw Jehovah the king in his holy array. And so you have the two sets of kings and the two different words that they speak. Jehoshaphat was evidently not greatly persuaded, however. You know, there's something about that godly man. He says, this is fishy. This isn't right. He wasn't persuaded by the false prophets. Even their unanimous vote of confidence in uh, assuring Ahab of a coming victory did not persuade him. And so he asked if there was not any further possibility to consult a prophet of Jehovah. He just wasn't satisfied these ministers of Ahab were truly prophets of the Lord. Now Ahab, the wicked king, had a heathen understanding of prophecy. He thought that the prophets themselves determined curse or blessing by the word which they chose to utter. It was something like magic. If you get a holy man to say these words, then those words would govern the course of history. Of course, you remember the story of Balak and Balaam in the Old Testament. Balak had the same problem. He wanted Balaam to say certain words against the Israelites. He figured if I could just get the holy man to say it, it would have to be true. And you know why that's such a heathen idea of prophecy? is because it assumes that the words of men control the actions of God rather than the words of God controlling the actions of men. Essentially, Ahab thought God could be controlled. He would later find out that God's word controlled every detail of history down to an arrow shot at a venture into a crowd where Ahab was hidden away and no one knew he was the king. And that arrow not only hit him at a venture, but struck him between the joints of his armor, a virtual impossibility. 
and he went back to his chariot, bled and died. It's no wonder that Ahab feared a word from Micaiah, because he knew Micaiah hated him. He knew that Micaiah would never speak well for him. He would never speak well about him. And if the words of the prophets control what will happen, then you've got to silence anybody that doesn't speak what you want to hear. And so he preferred his parrots, the parrots of the golden calf, who would speak for the favor of men. He preferred that to hear the word of the Lord. A messenger went to fetch Micaiah for Ahab, and the messenger urged Micaiah to play the part of a parrot. Echo what you hear. You hear the other saying this? Then you just squawk it back. Be a good boy, Micaiah. Speak good of the king. Echo what the prevailing majority say. Protect yourself from unnecessary retaliation. And so, when Micaiah appears before Ahab, he ridicules and he mocks the false prophets. He imitates exactly what they say. You can imagine the tone of voice. Sure, Ahab, go on up. Oh, you'll win. I'm sure it'll be a great victory. Hasn't everybody said so? Sure, Ahab, go ahead. You think that's appropriate for a prophet of God to speak that way, so sarcastically, with such ridicule? Well, I do. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? Elijah wasn't a very nice person. You know, if Elijah were here today, we'd consider him very impolite. Because, you see, when the prophets of Baal were trying to do their religious work, Elijah sat there and he made fun of them. He said, what's wrong with your God? Is he asleep? Is he out going to the bathroom? That's what he said. He ridiculed them. Holy mockery. And I think it's appropriate. And Micaiah engages in the same. And he mocks them. And he says, sure, Ahab. Go right ahead. Anything you say, Ahab. What do you want? I'll be a parrot for you. And immediately, of course, the king recognizes the farce. And he's angered by it. He doesn't want to be played the fool by this Micaiah. And so Ahab makes the mistake of demanding the truth. When Ahab demanded the truth, he then heard not the word of a parrot, but the awesome word of the living God. Micaiah had told the messenger who came for him, As surely as Jehovah lives, I can speak only what the Lord says. I want you to note the conspicuous contrast between the earthly king sitting in their royal state and God Almighty sitting on his heavenly throne and the vision God gives to Micaiah. Micaiah is shown Israel, lost its shepherd, and the sheep scattered upon the hillsides, needing to return home without a leader. Terrible prophecy. And it has its background in Old Testament literature. Moses saw Israel scattered without a shepherd. And so Joshua was lifted up to be the leader. David later became the shepherd of Israel. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us, Jesus looked upon the crowds and had compassion on them, for he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And so Micaiah shows up. And when he's told to tell the truth, he finally does. And he says, I'll tell you what will happen, Ahab. The shepherd's going to be killed, and the sheep will go home without a leader. 
What do we learn from this story? I want to ask you two things this morning. The story, very dramatic story, a very important story theologically. I want to ask you two things about it. First of all, what kind of prophet do you want? And what kind of prophet are you willing to be? First of all, what kind of prophet do you want? You know, this is not a story about ancient, ignorant people who aren't as sophisticated as we are. This is a story about us. This story is in the Word of God because all Scripture, inspired of God, is profitable for us, not only for teaching, but for reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. And what do we learn from this story? We learn something about the religious nature of men. We learn that they don't like to hear hard truths. We learn that they don't want their religious leaders telling them things which are evil and uncomfortable and hard. They want their religious leaders to tell them things which are good and favorable and easy to swallow. You know, most congregations, I'm sorry to say, most congregations in our nation today window shop for their preachers. They window shop for men who will tell them things to their own liking. And I'm sorry to say that most visitors to churches make the same mistake. Most visitors shop for a message that is palatable, a message which is tasty, a message which is not bitter and hard to swallow. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, that this is the character of our age. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears will heap to themselves teachers after their own lust, and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside unto fables. That time not only came, that time is here. When people do not endure sound doctrine, but they heap up to themselves teachers after their own desires. How many preachers do you know who will preach that there is an everlasting hell and with, without shame tell people they must flee from the wrath to come? How many preachers do you know who will declare that God is sovereign and His Word governs every event of history? And it's not according to our free will and choice, but according to His mercy and power that we become Christians. How many preachers do you know who declare we must live by the law of this God? And if we don't, His people, the church, must do something about that and make a public stand for the honor of their Savior. How many churches do you know who will preach hard doctrine? I don't know many who will preach hardly any doctrine, much less hard doctrine. We are afflicted in our day with wimpish churches that don't believe in preaching the truth, don't believe in challenging the intellect, don't believe in the whole counsel of God. We live in a day of churches that want to coddle and make people feel good about themselves when God doesn't feel good about them. And so I ask you, what kind of prophet do you want? Do you want a prophet who makes you feel good? Do you want a prophet who will fit right into your traditions? Do you want a prophet who is nothing more but a parrot of your culture roundabout?
Not only is this a question directed to congregations, it's a question directed to the individuals there. What kind of prophet will you be? What kind of witness will you be? What do you stand for before your friends and your relatives and your colleagues? We have two kinds of prophets presented to us in our text today, Zedekiah and Micaiah. And Zedekiah pleased men with an optimistic, upbeat message. And we have so many Zedekiahs in our day. Robert Schuller in Garden Grove not only preaches, but dares to publish abroad the view that we cannot declare the sinfulness of men because that challenges their self-esteem and that keeps them from coming to church because they don't want a downer message. The Zedekiah of our age over there in his glass cathedral offending my God and yours by altering what the Word of God says to please men. And so would you be a Zedekiah? Would you be a Micaiah? Oral Roberts tells his people, something good is going to happen to you today. And they love to hear that. And they lap it up. And they send in their foolish money to support his foolish message. The Zedekiahs of our age please men with their optimism. And the gospel does not get heard. But you see, it's easy to throw rocks at people so far away from us. It's in our very midst too. Evangelicals throughout this nation refuse to preach the predestinating sovereignty of God because that's hard doctrine. They refuse to preach it because they believe that somehow in their own wisdom, in their own goodness, and by their own free will, they made a decision to become a Christian. That Jesus did everything He could and now He's just crying and pleading with men, please give me a chance. What a wicked, terrible view of Jesus. And it's preached in the pulpits of our land that you must make a decision for God. He's done everything He can. The rest is up to you. I want to tell you, my friends, if the rest were up to me, I wouldn't be a Christian. And neither would you. Because none of us have it in us to make a decision for Jesus. The leopard cannot change its spots. Only the Holy Spirit of God can change hearts and translate us from the kingdom of Satan and darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. And we have evangelicals all around us with their Zedekiah complex wanting to please people and tell them, yes, it's all up to you. And it's not just the evangelical church, it's the Reformed church as well. The Reformed church has such a godly, biblical heritage and so many distinctives. And yet I find people that are ashamed of those distinctives today, ashamed to preach them and to follow them. In fact, a good number of those who call themselves Reformed ministers, I think, are not even aware of those distinctives. Distinctives about worship and the way God is to be approached. Distinctives about church discipline and the way the congregation is to live. Distinctives about the law of God and the way we're to preach that to men and change the affairs of this world. We're ashamed of these Reformed distinctives because we want an optimistic, upbeat, easy-to-swallow message for men. And it's not the Reformed world in general. It's in our own denomination, too. You see, we have a reputation for hard doctrine, but I know better. Because I see men examined for the ministry. 
and I see the contortions that will go to to justify poor exams and not demand of men that they come forth and understand their doctrine, be able to declare it with boldness and confidence. I see in our own denomination a desire to let men come in from apostate denominations without having to make them say, yes, they were apostate denominations. We just want to please men. Zedekiahs. Will you be a Zedekiah? Or will you be a Micaiah who represented the God of truth and declared the truth of that God? Will we be parrots or prophets of God? You know what Ahab said to Micaiah before he went to battle? He said, Micaiah, I'm sending you to prison to eat the bread of affliction until I return in peace. Micaiah said, if you return in peace, then I'm not a prophet of God. Are you ready to eat the bread of affliction so that God's people can have the bread of life? Because if you are, you're going to suffer. And you're going to be criticized and ridiculed. You're going to be told all sorts of things about your personality that you never knew about yourself. Because people don't want to hear that from you. And they'll assume there's something really twisted and wrong and nasty inside you that you would preach such hard things. So what kind of prophet do you want, people of God? And what kind of prophets are you willing to be? Zedekiah's or Micaiah's? Secondly, this morning I want to ask you, what kind of word must we have for our day if we're going to be prophets of God? Well, I think parallel to Micaiah's situation, the word we must have for our day is a word of warning. Now, the captain of the Titanic was not a good prophet. He said it was impossible for his ship to sink. You see, he didn't want to be pessimistic. He didn't want people to be cautious. He didn't want them to worry about a thing. Well, we can't be that way. Our word must be a word of warning to people because we live in a day of deadly religious peril. We live in a day where everyone around you is talking about tolerance and about sympathy and about understanding what everybody says. And that tolerance is not just tolerance. Within the Christian fold, you know, Arminian and Calvinist, which may be reprehensible enough that the gospel doesn't mean enough to us to stand up for it in its purity. But that tolerance is tolerance for Roman Catholics as well, and tolerance for Buddhists and Hindus, and everybody has some kind of religious streak in them. We live in a day of deadly religious peril, and we must warn men of that, that if they believe what these false prophets say, they will go to hell. We live in a day where the consequences of sin are not understood. We live in a hedonistic day where men don't want to be told you must restrain yourself. You must live with justice and integrity and fidelity. Now, if we're going to preach the Word of God today, it must be a word of warning to men. Secondly, if we're to preach the Word of God, it must be a word of offense. And there's no way around it. If the Word you preach is not offensive, it's not the Gospel. The cross of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of blood atonement is not something people easily accept. It's not something they want. It's not something they go looking for. And when you proclaim the cross of Christ, it will be a stumbling block to intellectuals. It will be a stumbling block to people who want to maintain their self-esteem. It will be a stumbling block to those who want to believe that anybody can approach God in his own virtue. 
the word of the cross is an offense to men. And it will bring reproach from men if we preach it. But the choice is yours. You may have the reproach of men brought upon you, or in the end, the reproach of God. For myself, I have chosen, to the best of my ability, to preach with purity what God says, and nothing else, so that one day I will hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. Be a Micaiah. Be one who says what the Lord God says. That's what I will say. 1926, in the Princeton Theological Seminary Chapel, J. Gresham Machen preached upon this text that I've chosen for this morning. And he concluded that sermon by saying, The day for Christian heroism is not over. That was in 1926. In 1929, Machen formed Westminster Theological Seminary because he could not go along with the broad churchism of Princeton Seminary that said men don't have to believe in the virgin birth of Christ. Men don't have to believe in the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. Men don't have to believe in an everlasting hell. And in 1936, J. Gresham Machen was suspended from the Christian ministry because he would not support the sending of Pearl Buck and others like her as alleged Christian missionaries. The day of Christian heroism is not over. If you think those stirring days in the 20s and 30s called for Christian heroes, let me tell you the 1980s called for them ten times more. The peril is ten times worse. The gospel is not even a tenth heard as well as it was in those days. We must preach a word of offense, the word of the cross. But thirdly, it's also a word of joy. Because it's a word of salvation. Not a joy as the world gives. Not a joy that comes from easy living and thinking well of yourself and promoting your own self-esteem. But it's a word of joy because it proclaims that the good shepherd has come. Micaiah said that he saw God's people scattered without a shepherd. But we now have the good shepherd who has come and united God's people together into his own body. He has given his life for the sheep. And so, despite the ridicule of men, and despite the offense of the cross, we have a joyous message for the world. Today's churches are crowded where Zedekiah and his associates hold forth like zoos full of parrots, parroting the word of the world and the word of men. Hungry souls are asking, Is there not a prophet of Jehovah? that we may inquire of him. I call on you today to be Micaiah's, to answer that need of people, to have as your testimony, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that will I speak. Amen. Oh, Father, we ask you this day, to give us the bread of affliction if it is necessary. That we might be willing to receive the reproach of men and to be rejected by the world. That we might have the courage to stand up against the religious parrots all around us who are misleading men and perverting your truth and sending souls to hell by their error. Give us the courage to stand up against that. 
to see you high and lifted up in your royal array and all the hosts of heaven on your right hand and on your left and to be willing to say with Micaiah and all the godly prophets of old that what your word declares, that shall be our testimony. That and nothing other. For there is no other bread of life. There is no other good word. There is no other gospel whereby men may be saved. We pray for that courage. We pray for that faithfulness. We pray for the strengthening of your Holy Spirit that your Son might be honored in our lives and lifted up that we might prove to be faithful ministers who receive your benediction, well done, good and faithful servants. And we pray for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.